Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. So this week was a real sign of our times, um, our post-Christian culture on Jeopardy. The question was, complete the line of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, this be thy name. And all three were stumped. So when I was growing up, uh, television shows had punchlines that would reference Methuselah, um, Adam and Eve, uh, without any explanation. Um, and so it's Noah and things like that. And so it's really an indication of, of our culture. Uh, so today we pick up in the Gospel of Mark right after Jesus' baptism and resurrection. And I'm going to do a fair amount of reading because then I'm going to, and with a few comments, and I'm going to bring it all together uh, with some comments at the end. And so we begin with Jesus preaching in Capernaum. I, I want you to be sensitized to the idea of the word preaching and teaching. Uh, Jesus and his companions went to, to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of the law. Interesting that they were amazed by his teaching. Um, something was different about it. And I, I wish the scripture said more. He taught with real authority of what that looked like. What, what was it about the hearing of Jesus preach that convinced you of his authority? Quite unlike the teachers of religious law. And so there was a distinct difference. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue, verse 23, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus reprimanded him, be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. And at that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Notice, the amazement gripped the audience. They began to discuss what happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They said excitedly, it has such authority. There's that word again. Evil, evil spirits obey his commands, and the news of Jesus began to spread quickly throughout the region. I want to take a little digression here, and so a question that would come from this passage is, do we have authority to cast out demons? And uh, for me personally, as I see the scriptures, I think there's a number of problems with this, questions that need to be answered first. I don't see any instruction for the church to cast out demons or how to cast out demons. We see examples of Jesus and the apostle casting out demons, and then that's it. Second, how do we identify demons? My experience is that uh, we then become tempted to find a demon everywhere. 
Some believe that sickness is a demon. And so if you're sick, they want to cast out the sick demon. Others believe mental illness is demon possession. Others, self-mutilation, alcoholism, drug addiction, and the list goes on and on and on. And how the Bible doesn't instruct us how to determine. In fact, every time we see it referenced, it's very obvious. This is important. I'm not saying that demons do not exist, nor I'm saying they're not active. I am saying that I don't see any instruction in the scriptures as far as how to identify this. Third, there are no examples of exercising demons in the Old Testament. This makes me think that something unique was happening in the time of Jesus and the apostles, and I'll say more on this later. The exception that sometimes is given by people is when David played music, it says that an evil spirit departed from Saul. First, it's not certain whether it was an evil demon or a depressed spirit. Uh, we sometimes will say, my spirits were lifted when, when uh, we were worshiping. And David is not casting out a demon, he's singing. Fourth, and this is important, Jesus was proving his authority over evil and demonic realm. And I'll say more about this at the end of the message. If all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in our lives, the Bible is complete to instruct us in how to live life. And so isn't it suspicious that in the entire New Testament, the epistles, not the history, not Matthew, Mark, June, John, not June, June didn't write a book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts are histories, and we see the example, but when the letters are written to the church, we see nothing about this. Do I believe demons exist and are active? Yes, but again, when it happens, it's overtly obvious. I've spoken with missionaries who experience things in cultures of witchcraft and total absence of Christian witness. And it seems very obvious and uh, so forth. The closest passage in the New Testament, and again, I find this really affirming. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the strategies of the devil. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly realm. That obviously is not people, it is talking about the evil realm and the various authorities in that realm. So what are we to do? Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. And I've preached on the armor. Each piece of the armor is a truth to affirm in my heart. Uh, the belt of truth, God's righteousness, peace that comes through the good news, faith, the sword of the spirit, and salvation. But what am I supposed to do in the face of the battle of evil? Pray. Pray in the spirit at all times, on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in prayers for all believers everywhere. The closest thing that the New Testament instruction comes to dealing with evil forces is to get on our knees and fight by praying. Let's move on with uh, verse 29 of Mark chapter 1. 
After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever, and they told Jesus about her right away. And he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. The fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus, and the whole town gathered at the door to watch. Verse 34, so Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons, but because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. And the question often is asked is, why did Jesus tell people and tell demons not to, not to tell others? And the, he, the Bible doesn't really tell us, but I think the best explanation is, is, first of all, Jesus did not want demons proclaiming who he was. And secondly, he wanted to authenticate his person and his message. Uh, we'll see throughout the Gospels through uh, uh, signs and wonders. That is what Isaiah prophesied as a way to, to know the Messiah. More on that in a minute, too. Now, watch this, how interesting this is. 34, he's been healing people uh, throughout the evening and into the night. And before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went to an isolated place to pray. pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. And when they found him, they said, everybody's looking for you. And what do you think Jesus does? He goes somewhere else. He says... We must go to other towns as well. I will preach to them too. That is why I came. Why did Jesus come? He starts with teaching. Right after the baptism and the temptation, he starts teaching. His signs and wonders are authenticating his message. He casts out demons to authenticate that he has the power over the demonic world. And even though there are people who are sick and people who need a healer he, and people looking for him and he's in the area, he goes to another town because he came to preach. So he traveled through the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Move with compassion. That's another one of my favorite phrases in the gospel, move with compassion. We see a number of times where Jesus is touched to his very heart with the plight of people. This is one of those. Jesus reached out and touched him, and he said, I'm willing. He said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, and the man was healed. Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anybody about this. Instead, go to the priest, let him examine you, take along the offering required by the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. In other words, don't tell anybody. You go to the priest, and that will be the authentication. But the man went and spread word, proclaiming to everybody what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, and people from everywhere kept coming to him. Isaiah 61.1 is how we know, we'll know that the Messiah is here. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim the captives will be set 
and the prisoners will be freed. I didn't put the rest of that passage in there, but, but the, this is the uh, statement of what are you seeing? People are being healed, blind are seeing in the Isaiah passage. And uh, this is the statement that Jesus gives to, to his um, John the Baptist disciples. Remember, John the Baptist doubts after he's arrested, are you really the Christ? And they come to Jesus, his disciples, to take the message back to John. And Jesus says, well, what are you seeing? You're seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Back to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors there was no more room even outside the door. Take note of the next phrase, while he was preaching God's word to them. And so he's preaching. He's proclaiming the good news. His miracles are an authentication of his message. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole above the roof in his head. You wouldn't do that today because of the litigious society we live in now. But anyway, they lowered the man on a mat right down in front of Jesus. So what is everyone expecting to Jesus to do right now? Heal him. What does Jesus do? Seeing their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. And then he stops talking. Imagine the silence in the crowd at that moment, like, that's not what I expected. Didn't you expect him to get up and walk? Or some of the teachers and religious of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and, and what they were thinking, and he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Imagine their thought, like, whoa. And so he asked this question, is it easier to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Isn't that an interesting answer? Jesus has a lot of comeback and questions uh, that really stump the hearer. In fact, most of the questions Jesus seems to be asked are trick questions. He's not asked a question here, but but he answers with a twist, and sometimes we get confused about some things because we take the twist to be uh, the final statement. Well, which is easier? On one hand, it's easiest to say your sins are forgiven you because no one knows whether they are, right? This is the problem that we're going to see in a moment with so much of the movement in the last hundred years of signs and wonders being for today. How do I know if it's real? On the other hand, only God can forgive sin, so it's easy to say it as far as people are concerned, not knowing, but it's harder to say it if it's really happening. Only God can say that. This is a setup for what comes next. Verse 10, So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. The man jumped up, 
grabbed his mat, and walked through the stunned onlookers. There's, and often there's two miracles in the healing. There's the miracle of the problem, and then there's the miracle of the recovery. They are said that when a blind man receives sight, that he, doesn't, he can't distinguish between seeing an orange and seeing a, a dog. That the brain has not sorted through being able to interpret. Remember that one blind man says, I see people as trees, like, and uh, Jesus touches him again, and he then sees clearly. Some think that that's what's happening. If a man has not walked, and then he jumps up and takes his stuff and starts walking out, uh, that's pretty amazing. It's like a miracle of the recovery as well. And so clearly, this passage, we see the reason for miracles. They're to authenticate the person of Jesus. Miracles authenticate his message, and miracles authenticate his authority. So, what was Jesus' priority in his ministry? Miracles or teaching? Obvious answer, I started by saying, pay attention to the word preaching and teaching. But a big question in the room today, even as you're hearing this passage, is are miracle workers alive today? And in some charismatic circles, of course, they would say yes. So I want to answer this, but this could be multiple messages, of course. So I'm just going to shoot across the surface And just to maybe give you some insight, and you can investigate this more if you want to. It's interesting that when we think about the Bible, we think of it as a book of miracles. You can go on to the next slide. If we think of Bible time as 4,000 years, we don't know when Genesis 1 took place, but some have said... Uh, 4000 BC, the time of the apostles ended 100 AD, 90 AD, we're in the 90s probably. And so we have basically 4,000 years of history from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. If you look at miracles in the Bible, you're going to see prominence of six names. You're going to see Moses and Joshua, and we'll give them 100 years because they Moses lived quite long. He was 80 before he ever went to Pharaoh, and then 40 years in the desert, and then Joshua takes over. You see Elijah and Elisha, people raised from the dead, and different things happen, and you see Jesus and the apostles. Now, so in 4,000 years of Scripture, you see roughly 150 to 200 years of miracles of a miracle worker. Now, please understand, distinguish between miracles and a miracle worker. In other words, if I pray for someone to be healed and they are healed, that's a miracle. If I walk over to the bed and say, I heal you in the name of Jesus, that's a miracle worker. And so there are miracles that occur, such as uh, the, the tabernacle being captured and taken into the land of the Philistines and all kinds of amazing things happen. God's deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian army and so on and so forth. What is happening during these three times? There is a change of programs 
in Joshua, in Moses and Joshua, the nation is being created. The Pentateuch is being written. The Mosaic Covenant is being entered into. Something new is happening. God is making a contract with a nation. Then, when we get to Elijah and Elisha, it's not quite as clear, but, but uh, the prophets are being written. Israel is at the brink of losing everything. And the prophets are warning them that God is about to judge them. The prophets are also doing something else, and they're very clearly pointing to the Messiah who will come years later. Then when Jesus and the apostles, what is happening? Well, our sins are forgiven. way has been made permanent for our sins to be forgiven. The New Testament is being written. The New Covenant Something completely new again, a change in God's program. Secondly, with these things, there's the problem of validation. How do we know that when Moses came out of the desert at 80 years old and he says, hey, God's going to do something, how do we know? And so we see uh, this idea where multiple times in the Pentateuch, these miracles and these deliverances were so that Israel would know that, there are, that their God is there with them. Also, so that the nations would know that there's a God in Israel. One of the things that's very important is the test of a prophet. Deuteronomy, Moses was writing, if a prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name or speaks in the name of another, God must die. How will we know whether or not the prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophet speaks in the name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. The prophet has spoken without my authority, need not be feared. If a prophet misspeaks and something does not come true, they are a false prophet, period. This is affirmed later in some of the prophetic, in the prophet books. So, I've had a lot of discussion with, with uh, friends over the years. One day after a service, a woman came to me and says, I have something very important to talk to you about. And we went into the back room, and, and she said, God came to me this morning, and he has a message for you. And it was something that I was to preach on. Well, how would I know if that was true or not? So I said to her, how are you going to authenticate your message? And she says, what do you mean? I says, well, God would also give you some kind of miracle so that I would know not to do what I believe God is leading me to do and not to do what's planned. You're saying to stop and that you're speaking with the authority of God. Talk to another person about a healer. Does the healer wear glasses? Are they bald? Do you get pimples? Cavities? In fact, if you read Johnny Erickson Tata, the woman who spent her life from, I think, 16, 17 in a wheelchair and speaking about going to faith healing services and the line of wheelchairs waiting for a great amount of time to get out through handicap access. Many years ago, somebody came into the office and said, uh, you're never going to believe this, and he named a very very famous charismatic leader. 
um, probably the most famous name if I mentioned it. And he said, um, my mother got a letter from him personally addressed to her and it said, God came to me in such a way that I had to pull my car over and pray. And he told me to write to you and ask for $1,000. And my friend said, laughed and says, my mom died three months ago. And I looked at him and I said, that means he's a false prophet, right? And the jaw just like, how prevalent is this in our, in our world today? One of Trump's uh, religious advisor declared Trump's victory. I will quote the person, you will give us victory. I hear the sound of abundance of rain. I hear victory. The sound of shouting and singing. I hear victory. I hear rain. I hear victory. I hear rain. I hear victory. God has done it. The Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. I hear victory, 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 victory in the corners of heaven, in the corners of heaven. Victory, 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 victory. Then the person spoke in tongues for a time and then came back that God had revealed that angels have been dispatched from Africa right now. Africa now. Africa now. They're coming. They're coming. In the name from South America, they're coming here, they're coming here, they're coming here, they're coming here, they're coming here. From Africa, from South America, angelic forces, angelic reinforcements, angelic reinforcements, angelic reinforcements. Not a lot of content there. <laughs> now let me say this. If Trump is not currently the president, what does that make this person? Now, if the election was stolen, that's even worse for this person because the angels and God could not make it happen. You see, we, we can't fool around with this stuff. Now, I, I read one person who says, well, charismatics don't hold that high of a standard, that uh, we, we all agree that mistakes happen. But if you're speaking for God, you're speaking authoritatively. You're binding that person to obey. Interesting, in 1 Corinthians 13, the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, come to an end. Paul has just spoken, in verse chapter 12, he's spoken about the misuse of gifts. That uh, there was a lot of problems in the Corinthian church, but they seemed to be... Um, have a lot of signs and wonders. And so Paul was writing about the abuse of gifts, and then he talks about what is supreme, and that is love. And if you've been to five weddings, probably three of them read 1 Corinthians 13 because it's the most profound statement about love in recorded history. Never has love been more profoundly defined than 1 Corinthians 13. And then Paul says this, love First of all, he's saying love is more important than gifted speaking. Love is more important than the possession of spiritual gifts. Love is more important than sacrificial giving. Love is more important than even martyrdom, giving your life in service. And in the absence of love, these things are nothing. Then he defines love. And then he says love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there's knowledge, it'll be done away. I use the New American Standard here. Um, because I, 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 I didn't like the way the 
New Living Translation um, added some words that aren't in the text. But anyway, the simple answer is assigned gifts would end. And you know what? They did. Even charismatics recognize that the sign gifts ended for 1900 years, 1800 years, until 1900. And then there are some Old Testament passages that speak about latter rain, and they were written, but they were written as a sign to Israel. It was Israel that will be a sign with these, this outpouring of the Spirit. It's even interesting in the New Testament, as they're coming to to an end, Timothy is sick. What does Paul say? Take medicine. Use a little wine to settle your stomach. Paul's thorn, he was not healed, though he prayed three times. Each of the disciples was martyred. It's interesting that during Jesus' time, you see this explosion of signs and miracles. What is happening during that time? The, The scripture is being written. And I don't have time to go into this. My, my personal conviction is that the completeness when these sign gifts are not needed is when we have the Word of God. Because when the Word of God is completed, we have everything we need to pertaining to living godly. Period. The Holy Spirit can lead us, but we walk by faith, not sight. When a person tells me that God told them to do something, that's not faith, that's sight. Now, does God burden us? There's always an element of mystery. I think it's important to understand that. Problem is, prophecy, tongues, healings, and knowledge are spectacular, right? Uh, Love sounds so boring. A lot of the good things sound boring, don't they? Healthy eating versus junk food. Studying versus playing. Ask any person in school about that. Um, Faithfulness in our family versus partying. In fact, we've redefined what it means to have a good time. And... Literature is filled with the idea of being attracted to the bad boy or the bad girl. But it's the payoff that counts. Scripture may seem boring. Faithfulness may seem out of fashion. Prayer may feel like I'm not doing anything. But these are the things that accomplish God's plan in my life. And we have to stop and think with a clear head. In each and every case of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we see these times of signs and wonders, it is because God is doing something new and he's authenticating his message. The last night that Jesus was with his disciples, the very end, he is walking with them from the Last Supper down through the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. When I was in Israel a few months ago, We were in the city of David, and they said, we're going to walk down from the city of David to the springs at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. It was really far. I think it was 900 steps is what the guy said. 
um, just kind of going down a spiral staircase and then walking about 10 feet and then down, 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 walking a few. So this was a quite a long walk down and up. And Jesus is talking to them. John 14, 15, 16, and 17 is that discussion until they come to the garden. And John 18 begins when he enters the garden. Jesus begins by saying this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you and later will be in you. I will not abandon you as orphans. I'll come to you. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am your father and you are in me. Jesus then later in John 16 says this, I'm going away to the one who sent me, not, and not one of you is asking where am I going. Instead, you grieve because I've told you. Imagine the sorrow of the disciples that Jesus is leaving. Listen to this next verse. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I go away, then I will send him to you. Here's, here's an amazing thing. Wouldn't you give anything to spend an hour with Jesus? And what Jesus is saying to the men is, it's better for you that I go away. And I'd be thinking, no, it's not, it can't be. Because Jesus was God incarnate, and so he was here. So for you to spend an hour with Jesus, he'd ride home in your car. And then he'd say, well, I need to go over to the Hartwells. So he'd go over with them, but then you'd have to say goodbye to him. And then he's in one place, but what he's saying in the spirit of God, the spirit of God will be with you. He's my spirit. He will speak of me. He will teach you. And so what we possess, what we live with is really the miracle. What is the miracle today? You can go to the next slide. I don't think I put it in my notes. What is the authentication of the gospel? What is the miracle that authenticates the gospel? And I go to this passage every time I have ever discussed the idea of miracles authenticating Jesus' message. When he says, so that you will know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, boom, John 17. Jesus says, I'm writing to those who will believe through their message. And he says, I pray that they will all be one, speaking of us, just as you and I are one, speaking to the Father, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, that they may be in us, what? So that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them glory in you so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you've loved me. You see, in the New Testament, after the writing of Scripture, after the time of apostles, we go back to one of those big gaps we saw in the Old Testament. 
but we're not without miracles. Because you are the miracle. And I am the miracle. Next week, Pastor Lyle's going to talk about the statement where Jesus says, was that, where the question was asked, why does Jesus eat with these kinds of people? And Jesus told him, healthy people don't need a doctor. If you hang out with Christian friends, they don't need a savior. Sick people do. I have come to call those who think they are righteous, but I did not come to those who think they are righteous, but to those who know they are sinners. You see, our life is a miracle and needs to be seen. We keep, need to keep hanging out with people that need Jesus. Our life, our unity, is the miracle today that authenticates the gospel. Jesus' last words to his disciples, literally, and he turns around and he enters the garden with three of them. That you and your unity and the people who believe on him in the future, your unity will be the miracle of authentication of the gospel. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us not to be lulled, tempted by shiny things, things that have a, the appearance of fun, um, that pay in devastating ways. God, help us to recognize the miracle of the new birth and that we are the evidence of that miracle. And we who have been delivered from darkness, that we who were hostile in our thoughts and hostile in our actions toward you, that we were enemies, and while we were enemies, Christ died for us. God, help us not to take that for granted, not to think that it's a small thing, not to, not to minimize it, but to understand this is what Jesus said would convince the world that you love them, to convince the world that Jesus died for their sins, to convince the world that Jesus was God in the flesh. God, help me to be faithful, please. Help people to see and to ask of the hope that is within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.